We are continuing our series, His Story, God's Plan of Redemption from the Start to the End of the Bible. So let's open up in prayer as we continue in this series and look to see what God has to say to us through it. Heavenly Father, you are the God of everything. You have authority above all power and rule. Every single one of your plans, you bring them to pass. We thank you that even though the world at times may look chaotic, you are still working out your good and your perfect purposes, your perfect will and your perfect plan. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look through and see how uh, your word has one cohesive message start to finish, centred on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we look to your word that you might encourage us, that you might remind us to cling on to you and to trust you, that you, uh, that even what we see around us today is part of your plan. Uh, but Lord, that we might, uh, more than anything, see Jesus Christ, that we might love him more, that we might change in our, our affections for him and our desire to serve him and to make him known. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, it was quite a while back that I did the very first one in this series as we're looking at God's unfolding plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, seeing that even though the Bible is 66 books written by about 40 authors over a period of 1,500 to 2,000 years, there is one united cohesive story from beginning to end. That is God's plan to establish his kingdom. We see the ideals of that presented at both ends of the Bible. We see in Genesis, you see Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden, perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with each other and with the creation, enjoying the blessing of being under the rule of God. Then you get to Revelation where you see the new heavens and the new earth and you see the perfected picture of the kingdom of what it means for God's people to be under God's rule and enjoy all of that blessing. But we're also looking at What do you do with everything in between? I can assure you it's not a series of failed attempts to try and undo what was undone in the garden. So we think, how does it all fit together? Questions like, how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? How do we, living in this era, have what do we do with with the Old Testament? My hope is as we do this that we will see how God's united story all fits together as one. The illustration we used in the first week is like having a a jigsaw puzzle. The box shows you how all the little bits fit together and make this one cohesive story. So this is to try to give you that big overall picture to help understand how all the individual elements fit together and how they form one united cohesive story of God's work in the world, particularly God's dealing with people in the world, and centred on Jesus Christ. Ray has already mentioned from Ephesians that God had to plan for all eternity. And that plan was to unite all things in Jesus. So it's no surprise that in the centre of God's plan is Jesus, and it's no surprise that the centre of the Scriptures is Jesus. All of the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. All of the New Testament shows how Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament and how he will bring in the perfected kingdom. But because it's God's word, it's not just a series of events. 
They're a series of events fitting and forming part of that single story. But also, because it's God's word, it comes with God's commentary or interpretation of those events. Now, I haven't got the image up there that I was going to put together, but in terms of how it looks, this idea of kingdom, in a tangible sense, goes up and down, up and down. There's moments when they're living in obedience where things really look to be headed in the right direction. But then there's moments when they reject God's rule, when they rebel against him and things appear to go downhill. But despite the roller coaster up and down of the practical, tangible, visible elements of God's kingdom in the world, what we'll see is a steady progress of God continuing to unveil and reveal more of that plan. Now, in the first week, I mentioned how excited I was about doing this series because it's so important to understand how the Bible all fits together. But when I got to the end of the sermon, I was really disappointed. Like, I actually thought that was the most disappointing sermon I've done since I've been here. And because it's important to lay those foundations, I don't think I did that clearly. Um, so my, attempt, my plan is, I have rewritten it, my attempts to re-record that, but each week we're going to look at how we've come to, where we've come to where we are at this point in the series. And because I don't think I did it well in the first one, we'll probably go into a bit more detail uh, as we do that today. But this is what we're going to look at today. The story so far, which we'll do every week, uh, looking at the Garden of Eden through to Babel. I'll lay in the first session I presented here. We didn't actually go as far as Babel. Then we're going to look at the promised kingdom, how God's promises to Abraham... And then preparation for the kingdom, looking at Exodus and the giving of the law. So story so far, God has an eternal plan to unite all things in Jesus. Now if God's plan is centred around kingdom, it's no surprise that his plan is centred around Jesus, who is the king of kings. Now the term kingdom doesn't appear that frequently throughout the Bible, but the concept is there right throughout it. Because a kingdom is essentially you have a king which is God. You need to have a people for the king to be over. There needs to be a defined area or a defined place of that kingdom. And there needs to be a means by which the king rules over those people. And because God is the good and perfect king, to be under his rule is the perfect place of blessing and the place to be. And so we began where the Bible begins, where God creates all things, which just by its nature establishes him as the king of all things. If he creates, he owns, and he's the rightful ruler of all things. But we also saw the special focus of his creation. In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, he creates mankind, Adam and Eve, in the image of God. Not only are they the only ones given to be the bearers of God's image, but they are given the task to rule over creation under God's ultimate rule. So if kingdom is defined by people, place and rule and blessing, which is the the means by which it will go through, we said in the first session this follows a very similar sort of framework. If you've ever read Vaughan Roberts' God's Big Picture or um, Graham Goldsworthy, Gospel and Kingdom or According to Plan, there are similar sort of ideas. And you'll notice I've stolen a few um, headings from um, um, Vaughan Roberts' book. We see the pattern of the kingdom there in the garden. Where God's people are Adam and Eve, the place is the Garden of Eden, and while they're underneath God's rule, doing everything he's called them to do, they had perfect relationships. They had perfect relationships with God, perfect relationships with each other, 
and even perfect relationships with the creation. And all of it continued that way while they remained under the rule of their rightful king until an act of treason. They decided, no, God doesn't tell me what to do. I'll decide what's best. And even though God says, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're tempted by the serpent. They look at it, sees good to their eyes, looks good like it's going to taste. And they decide for themselves, I don't need a ruler. I'm going to be the ruler of my own life. And they overthrow the king. They say, we're going to do it ourselves. And just as God forewarned them, there were consequences. Now, if God is good, he must act to rebellion against him. If God is good and everything he gives and commands to his people is good, then it must break his heart to see people choose something else. So we go from the pattern of the kingdom to a perished kingdom. Where God's people, it goes from being Adam and Eve to nobody. Where God's place they were in the Garden of Eden, they're kicked out of the garden as a result of taking themselves out of God's rule. Regarding God's rule and blessing, they've taken themselves out from underneath God's rule, which was the place of blessing, and what they inherited as a result of their disobedience was curse. Now, the Bible could have ended there. Now, if God gave them exactly what they deserved, eat of this tree, you will surely die. If he gave them exactly what they deserved there and then, story over. Very short Bible, wouldn't it? Three chapters, all done. Everyone could, maybe you could even memorise the whole Bible if that was the whole story. But if God had a plan for all eternity to unite things in Christ, if he had a plan that spanned the entirety of eternity, the fall didn't come as a surprise to him. It's not as though he had to go, oh, what do I do now? Yes, there was a spiritual death, a disconnection from the life-giving source of God. Yes, they would eventually physically die. But the fact they didn't die straight away means not only was there judgment for sin, there was also grace. God gave them grace that he didn't give them immediately what they deserved. And we're thankful on a daily basis that we don't get immediately what we deserved. But not only that, God's plan included the descendants of these first Adam and Eve. We see the first seed of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Even though they've been punished for their disobedience, God promises Genesis 3.15 that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent, one who would come who would reverse, who would heal the problem of evil in this world, the promise of a saviour. But as Romans 5 tells us, sin entered the world through one man and went came to all men. And it's no surprise, it doesn't take long for sin to do what sin does. When we step outside of God's rule, we do bad stuff. Genesis 3, they fall. Genesis 4, Adam and Eve's kids. Cain kills Abel. First murder in the Bible. But despite the growth of sin, God comes back to the point that he raised back in Genesis 1, in Genesis 5, says, you know what? Man and woman are still image bearers of God. Sin doesn't just end with Cain and Abel. You get to Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 to 9. You get to a point where it says that everyone was so wicked that God actually um, regrets that he made people. You think, man, if God's got kingdom plans, this looks like it's spiralling out of control. But again, sin is judged and punished by nature of the flood. 
And just like before where there was judgment for sin, there is also grace in God saving Noah and his family through the provision of the ark. But while it all looks like a new beginning, sin does what sin does. Continues to pass down as, as it has done to every single human being ever born. We get to another climactic moment of sin in Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. Particularly emphasised in verse 4 when they say, we are going to make a name for ourselves. They basically think they've got to a point where they think, we can do whatever we want. We are so strong and powerful and mighty, we don't need a God. Look what we can do. And once more, God punishes that rebellion. But you'll see there is a follow-up of grace. God confuses their languages. He scatters the people. So we've gone through all the, just a few number of chapters and so frequently think, man, if God wants to have a kingdom, if he wants to have a people for himself under his rule, it's not looking real good. But what I want us to see, as we saw back in Genesis chapter 3, even amidst the, the pinnacle of human failure, God still reveals more of his plan. Like Adam and Eve sin. God deals with that, but he also promises that there's a saviour coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Tower of Babel, God punishes the sin, but now, next chapter, we come to God's promises to Abraham where we see God's plan is alive and well as he reveals more and more of his plan of redemption. So that's our second thing, the promised kingdom, God's promises to Abraham. Sometimes these promises get called the embryo of the gospel or, or the seed of the gospel. We'll unpack that a little bit more as we go on. But because God is sort of gradually unfolding and uncovering more of his plan, I'm sure Abraham didn't actually understand the full extent or the full importance of what God had promised to him. But if the Bible is one unified story, as we said, we'll see that God does reveal more and more. We, we need the Old Testament to help us to understand the New Testament. But because God is giving us more and more detail, more and more clarity... Most importantly, we also need the New Testament to interpret the events of the Old Testament. And the the promises to Abraham are certainly no exception to that thing. So as God calls Abraham, we see something more of God's plan of kingdom. We've spoken about people, place and rule. Let's look at these words. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land. We've got land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. We have people. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you've got people, place, and you've got blessing there in these promises to Abraham. So just like Genesis chapter 3, where you went to rebellion being punished to the promise to restore... From Genesis chapter 11, from the Tower of Babel, you get the the punishment where they are scattered and divided, now to a promise to to unite and to bless. God's making very clear his kingdom plans haven't come to an end. And so we see promises of of a kingdom promised. Where God's people are Abraham's offspring, his place is the promised land of Canaan, and under God's rule there is blessing both to Israel and to the nations. He's making it very clear, this kingdom plan, it's not going anywhere. It's not going away. We see it noticed by emphasis. The reminders about the becoming a nation, becoming a, uh, entering into the land, being God's own people, he repeats it time and time again. Because sometimes you and I, 
just like this, we need to be reminded of what God has promised. Because sometimes our life sort of goes a little bit off-centre and it doesn't look like those things are playing out. And sometimes we need to hear God's promises again to remind us what he has said before. God renews that covenant both with Isaac and with Jacob, the very things promised to Abraham. As you go through the Old Testament, and particularly at times when things are not going well for the nation of Israel, you'll notice God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now when any idea or a picture of kingdom ideals looks absolutely absent, he reminds them again, who is your God? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God who promised to make you into a great nation. I'm the God who promised to bring you into a land. I'm the God who promised blessing to you and to the nations. But you could ask, God's promised, why does he take so long? Now, if, if God's all-powerful and he promises something, surely he can just go, done. There's probably a number of questions we'll raise as we kind of do a big-picture overview of the Bible. Some we might be able to answer, some we might not. Probably the first ones come to your mind as we go through, look through Genesis, is where did evil come from? Why does evil exist? If God creates everything good, how does it even happen to be in this world? Now, the Bible doesn't give it anywhere near as much of a detailed answer as we might like to that question, but it gives us enough that we need to know. It gives us enough to know that God didn't create evil, gives us enough to know that evil is always evil. But there's also a sense in somehow it is good somehow that evil exists in serving God's plan and purpose and using both for his glory and for our good. But as for the question of why does he take so long to fulfil promises, it's not that he's slow, it's because he's got a plan. Like Peter even de- deals with that very question in 2 Peter 3, 8-9. He says, but Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfil his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why does God delay in fulfilling his promises? Because he's a God of grace. He wants as many as possible to come to know him, to enter into his kingdom. We can be thankful that he delays. And in the meantime, God continues to reveal his plan throughout history according to his timeline. As we get towards the end of Genesis, you see Joseph raised up. You think, oh, he gets in a really high power in Egypt. Maybe something's going to happen here. You flip over to Exodus and says, then there was a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and your expectations go down low again. So thirdly, preparing the kingdom, Exodus and the giving of the law. Now we've just finished preaching through the book of Exodus. Uh, Those are regulars, we went through that for a fair bit of last year. We finished in December, so it should be reasonably fresh in your mind. But if God's plans are about kingdom, about having a people for himself in in his, his land, under his rule and blessing you think, it doesn't really look like that at the beginning, does it? You've got the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in Egypt under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh, not in the land. But the promises of God to have a people for himself in a land to dwell with them hasn't come to an end. As a matter of fact, these promises that God has formally made are the reasons why God brings the people out of Egypt. Remember we saw back in Exodus chapter 2, during those days the king of Egypt died 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So it's not that God has forgotten his promises. It's the very promises of God that causes God to act to deliver a people out out of Egypt. Nor, just like I said, the fall was not a surprise to God. Neither was the fact that the people were in slavery in Egypt was not a surprise. Mac, if you look at Genesis chapter 15, the covenant with Abraham, Abraham is told that his descendants will be carried away into a foreign nation where they'll be treated as slaves for 400 years. So God told him this was part of his plan. He also said he was going to bring them out of it. But just like you and I, sometimes we need reminders of God's promises because we look around and think, I don't see it. I don't see how God's doing what God promised he's going to do. So in the middle of that turmoil in Exodus chapter 6, God gets Moses to reveal this to the people. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So he reminds him, that's my plan. I'm not shifting from it. Everything I say I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. But as we look through Exodus, we realise God doesn't just bring them out of slavery. It's not just like, oh good, God rescues them out of slavery, gets them out of Egypt, off you go. All of God's saving acts are both a saving from something and a saving to something better. When God calls Moses up on the mountain in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, he says, when I have brought you out of Egypt, you will serve me on this mountain. So he says, I will rescue out of Egypt where you are under the rule, where you are serving the kingdom of Pharaoh and I'm going to bring you out not only as your deliverer but I'm going to be your king. You will come out to serve me, to be under my rule. Then having saved a people for himself, he gives them the law. Now anywhere you travel in the world there are rules and laws that govern what it means to be a citizen of that nation. And that's basically what the law was given to do. Say, you are now God's people. All of God's laws and decrees are for your good and for your blessing. And so God gives them their law, which instructs them in two things. Firstly, to know who their God is, how to relate to to their God, but also how to relate to one another. And just like it was back in the Garden of Eden, there's blessings for obedience and there's curses for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28 covers that quite comprehensively but amongst this law as we all know particularly if you were here as we went through exodus there's also a large chunk of exodus deals with building a tabernacle a place where god would actually dwell among the people and we start to see a little bit of a glimpse of a a rebuilding of what was there in the garden of eden where god is now seeking in a sort of restricted way to dwell and be have his presence amongst a people but it also looks forward to another area of kingdom progress when the Israelites would have a monarchy, when they would actually have a king. It was foretold in, in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. It's a slightly lengthy reading. When you come into the land that the Lord has given you and you possess it and dwell in it, then you'll say, I'll set a king over me like the nations who are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. 
than this bit, which Solomon would have been good to have learnt. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold or silver. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes by doing them. That is, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue along in his kingdom and his children in Israel. So basically says, yeah, you're going to have a king. I need to be the one who chooses the king. Gives a whole list of things where it said it shouldn't be. But he says, you're going to have a king, but it's not going to be like the nations all around you that you asked for. This king is going to be one who has a copy of God's law, which is an outline of God's rule by which he wants to uh, rule over his people, which is the means by which his people are blessed. He says, I want him to know that his rule isn't his own authority. I want him to express my rule over those people to be sort of like co-regents under God. And we'll go into that in more detail next week as we look at the partial kingdom and we look at the monarchy in detail. So where have we gone? We've gone from the pattern of the kingdom, Garden of Eden, where you've got God's people, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, where they're under his rule and they've got perfect relationships, which moves to the perish kingdom where there's now nobody's God's people. They're outside of God's place. And because they stepped outside of his rule, there's no blessing. There's just disobedience and curse. Then Genesis 12, we go into the promised kingdom where God's people are spoken of again, which will be the, the offspring of Abraham into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And then we go to the pre- prepared kingdom where God calls the people out of slavery, out of the rule to, a, to an oppressive king to be under his rule, under his good laws. But in a tangible sense, even in that short period of time, the visible expression of people living under God's rule, up and down. At moments of obedience that seems to be headed in the right direction, then sin being by the nature what it is, people turn their back on God. And he judges them and, and, and judges them because of their sin. But despite this up and down roller coaster of the visible, tangible expression of God's kingdom, God's plans are not being undone. We see a steady progress of God revealing more and more of his plans. In fact, if we've seen anything this morning, often at some of the key moments of human rebellion and failure, rather than undoing God's plan, God actually tells us a bit more of his plan. In the garden, they rebel against God, and God says, I'm going to send a saviour who's a descendant of this woman. After the Tower of Babel, scatters the people, then promises to Abraham, I've got plans for a people in a place that's going to be a blessing both to you and to all nations. People's disobedience does not hold God back. doesn't hinder his plans. This is the God who can and does do everything he sets out to do. But what do we do with this stuff? I mean, it's all good and well to, to learn a thing here and there, but what do we do with it? Do we just look at it and say, God says he's going to do stuff? God does it, our God must be powerful. Is that, is that what we used to do with as we look at these things? He said there was going to be an exodus out of Egypt. He did it. 
He promised Abraham they're going to enter into the land. They got there. So we just go, wow, our God's powerful. Yes, it is a display of the power of God. But if that's all you see, you're probably going to miss the point. If God has a united, cohesive plan for all eternity from start to finish, centred around Jesus Christ, you've got to ask, where's, where's Jesus in this? If this is just, wow, God did this for these people all these thousands of years ago, you think, well, that's largely irrelevant to me. But if it's part of a bigger plan that's centred on Jesus, of which we are part of, then it does matter. Because Jesus is the central key to understanding the Bible. Jesus made statements very clearly. On the road to Emmaus, in Luke chapter 24, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all of the things in the scriptures pertaining himself. When he's dealing with the Pharisees in John chapter 5, he says, you search the scriptures thinking in them that you have eternal life, but you fail to see that they bear witness to me. Or Paul, someone of Jewish background, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. To give you some really deep insight into the Greek for all, all means all. That means every promise of God finds its ultimate fulfilment in Jesus. And that will include these promises to Abraham. We've said it before, the Old Testament is necessary. We don't just read the New Testament. It's a necessary foundation to understand the New Testament. But because God is progressively unfolding and revealing more and more of his kingdom plan, under the inspiration of the, the Holy Spirit, the New Testament authors also give us God's interpretation of those events in a way which might be very different than if you just read the Old Testament on their own and how they contribute to God's Christ-centred plan. Think about God's promises to Abraham. On a casual reading, if you just read Genesis 12, you go, oh, good. The Israelites is going to form into a nation. They're going to get in the promised land, and it's going to be sweet. It's going to be nice for them. But Paul, as a man of Jewish heritage, and actually a Pharisee by upbringing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us this interpretation of those events. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So he says the sons of Abraham, he's defined as those of faith. Then he goes on to speak about, well, who are these people of faith? And the scripture foreseeing that he would justify the Gentiles by faith, so not to the exclusion of Jews by faith, but that was obviously stated, but it's saying also the Gentiles by faith, which was part of an eternal plan, Preach the gospel. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then those of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. See? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the, the, the gospel was preached to Abraham. The way how this plays out, how God will be a blessing to all nations through these promises of the offspring of Abraham, was that repentance and faith would come not only to Jews, but to all nations. So whether someone is of Jewish or Gentile background, as they enter into faith, they become children of that very promise. Because the offspring to whom it was promised to was not just national Israel. Because he goes on to say a few verses later, he clarifies this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say to his offsprings referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, singular, 
who is Christ. So Paul says, the offspring to who is the fulfillment of these blessings and these promises isn't a multiplicity of all ethnic people descended from Abraham, but to one descendant who is Jesus Christ. And God's kingdom people is now no longer people who are from a particular ethnic line or related to a particular man, but who are related to the true offspring, Jesus Christ. And Jesus even spoke with regards to his promises to Abraham in John 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Because remember, Paul says God preached the gospel to Abraham as he made those promises from Genesis 12. Now, I don't think Abraham thought, oh, good, in this number of years, Jesus is going to come along, he's going to die on a cross. I mean, you should look at, look at the scriptures. No one seems to have understood exactly how God was going to work out that plan. But he saw that God had promised him something, something that one offspring, blessing would come to all nations. So our Old Testament's not irrelevant. Our Old Testament's all about Jesus. So if you think you're, you're only reading the New Testament because the Old Testament stuff's got nothing to do with you, then Jesus says, it all points to me. When you read your Old Testament, look to see, see Jesus. Even these promises to Abraham, they're not irrelevant. Now even today, as people from all tongues and tribes and nations come to repentance and faith, trusting in Jesus the Saviour, God's promise to bless all nations through this seed, promised seed of Jesus, still being fulfilled. And he will continue to do so until that kingdom is perfected. The Apostle John has a, a glimpse into heaven in Revelation chapter 7. He describes it like this. After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all, all the angels were standing around the throne, and they were around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne of God and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be your to God forever and ever. Amen. We'll continue as we look at the partial kingdom as they look at the monarchy next week and its closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do have a plan. We thank you that your plan is, is not... Um, undone by human rebellion. We thank you that even throughout history we see a pattern of uh, judgment for sin, but also we see grace. We thank you that none of your plans that you set forth to achieve are thwarted by, by human works and everything that you promise for a perfected kingdom one day and a new heavens and a new earth will come to full fruition and we have absolutely no doubt. We thank you that you are even reigning now. You are our king. We pray that we would respond to you rightly as our king. And that unlike, as we'd learn from the examples that we've seen this morning, that we would learn that the place of blessing is to, to live in obedience, to, to honour you as king, to, to live according to the things that you've called us to do. And Lord, we pray that we as we go through the series or any time we read our Bible, that we would see Jesus, 
that you would capture our hearts' affections to, to love him more deeply than we ever have before. That you might change us, not only to, to love him, to, to be changed in our affections, but in our, even in our actions to become more like him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.